one thing I'm thankful for is I thought that the Ministerial Alliance Thanksgiving service went really, really well. And it was a huge blessing to me to be a part of it. And uh, I think it was a, a good testimony to the uh, community that God's people and all their differences and opinions and everything can gather together to worship the Lord, worshiping the same God, the same Lord and Savior. And it, it, re- it was really humbling to me and it was really encouraging. I thought about it multiple times throughout the week. So thank you, church, for holding and, and hosting the service and being a part of it and uh, just being welcoming to to the different people in the community. This morning we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish out that section, the the hymn of Christ. And so this will be, I think, the fourth, I lost track, the fourth uh, sermon on this, this particular passage, talking about who is Christ, who is this Jesus that we claim to worship. We've, we've seen in this, in this passage that Jesus is the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption. And if you aren't privy to the story of, of Christianity, then uh, if you only know Jesus as Lord of creation, uh, you, you may think he's done a pretty bad job. It's, it's not hard to look at creation. We may, we may marvel at at the Grand Canyon, at the, the stars at night, the, the beautiful sunrises and sunsets, um, a deer uh, just meandering and grazing on the leaves and, and, the, and the forage throughout in the forest. We may marvel at that, but then we also look at all the terrible realities that also come from creation. We look at the, the, the wildfires, we look at tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, we look at diseases, we look at um, wars and um, just the terrible things that humans have done to each other, and we think, man, whoever whoever created this must not have thought it through very well. And if that's if so, if you only know Jesus as Lord of Creation, and you don't know Jesus as Lord of Redemption, then it would not be a stretch to think that you don't view Jesus as being worthy of worship. So today, we will see Jesus' answer to the terrible things that we see in creation. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, whether uh, in heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten us to see the truths that are packed in this passage this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use me, a weak and broken vessel, Lord, to to communicate 
your word, Lord, to, to say the right words, to convey the right ideas. Lord, that light bulbs would go off, that wonder would strike our hearts at the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the hearers, that you would give them ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would use this message to unify our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So verse 19 and 20 will be what we're covering this morning. Verse 19 begins with the word for. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased as well. What is that for, therefore? He is, Paul is saying that what comes in verses 19 and 20 is an explanation for how Christ will be preeminent. Christ will be preeminent in everything, meaning he will be in first place. He will be superior. He will be supreme in all the universe. So the question that verses 19 and 20 is answering is how has God planned the story of the universe in such a way that Christ gets first place? And the answer is twofold. First, the answer has to do with who Christ is. And second, the answer has to do with what Christ has accomplished. So first, who Christ is. We read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Meaning, the human body of Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. See, it's hard for us at times because when we think of Jesus Christ, we almost automatically think of the human being Jesus Christ. But in truth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed in eternity past. Before he was ever born or even conceived in Mary's womb, he was. And so the idea... And going into Christmas, this is, this is uh, very um, appropriate. The idea that God would come and take on a human body. Paul is saying all of the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ bodily. So that's a difficult concept to conceive. But it is also one which is pertinent to the story. You see, Paul is combating false teaching, as he did most of the time. God, the divine realities in um, ancient Rome, it was believed that they were broken up into parts. You take everything that is deity, everything that is supernatural, everything that is divine, and it's broken up into little parts and kind of divvied and dispersed throughout all of the universe. And you would see these emancipations, or not emancipations, you would see these um, oh, manifestations of, of gods in reality, in, in, in the created order. And Paul was assuring that the believers in Colossae, Paul was assuring the believers in Colossae that God was unified and he was pleased to dwell in Christ. Notice it, it says the fullness of God. 
that needs to be distinguished from all of God. When Jesus Christ was a human being, when he came to earth and became human, not all, not everything that was God, as in all of God was in, was in him. You can't contain an infinite being in a finite human being. So it says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, not all of God was pleased to dwell. To give an illustration, an example that, that I find helpful to understand this, you think about the temple in, in uh, the Old Testament. Many times we read that the Lord's presence was in the temple, was in the Holy of Holies. Well, what is that supposed to mean? I mean, God's presence is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, he's omniscient. He's all over. So what does that mean? It means that there is a special presence in the temple that's unlike anything anywhere else. And that is what happened to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the person, the Son of God, dwelt a human body in a special way unlike anywhere else in the universe. So as Jesus Christ came to earth, the fullness of God had a human form. So everything that makes God who and what he is dwelt in the human body of Jesus Christ. His power, his knowledge, his character, everything, all his fullness. There wasn't any part of God that wasn't in Jesus Christ. That's, that's hard to distinguish. Because God is everywhere. He's an infinite being. And yet... A human body was filled with who he was. Jesus made God physical. He is the image of the invisible God, as Paul said earlier. And Paul will revisit this, this idea again in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ the whole fullness of deity, everything that it means to be God, Jesus was not lacking. He wasn't broke. God wasn't broken apart. And part of it was put in Jesus and then part of it was somewhere else. Everything that it meant to be God was in Jesus. And yet, not all of God fits in the body. So then it says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It says, pleased to dwell. That's very specific language. In other words, it was a good idea. The triune God, acting as the one God that he is, agreed that it was a great idea for Christ to come and to make himself visible and dwell among men. All the fullness of God agreed to fill Christ to make him become a visible person so that we could see that we could. So when we say, what is God like? We point to Jesus. I find in my studies of theology, there are a lot of paradoxes. There are a lot of things that we, we want to, we want to make it to where it's nice and neat and understandable. But I have found that studying God is a lot like trying to pack for a vacation. You get it all nice and neat in one corner, 
and you go to zip it up and you can't quite get everything crammed into the suitcase over here to zip around it. So what do you do? You unzip it and you kind of re-put some things and position things and you try again and then the other side comes up. It just doesn't all fit in our finite minds. God is too big. We cannot grasp him fully. So when one thing makes sense over here, we're like, well, how does that work over on the other side? And so you focus on it for a while and then everything, something goes out of whack elsewhere. But one thing is for sure. The idea of the Trinity is just one of those things. We talk about God being a triune God and we talk about him being one. It's very difficult to understand and it's very difficult to explain, at least for me it is. But God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. So only God can have first place in this world. Only he can be the most valuable player, the most important person, the highest treasure and the ultimate good in the universe. The Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, gets this most distinguished honor. He achieves and seals this position through his glorious sacrifice. So not only does Jesus hold the position of being the preeminent one because of who he is, he is God. He also seals that position because of what he accomplished. Verse 20, it begins, And through him, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Now let me put that into a sentence for you. All the fullness of God was not only pleased to dwell in Christ, but all the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile all things to Christ, through Christ. Jesus as the Son of God, created the world. We learn that he created it through him, by him, and for him. And so when the, the world, the created order, goes awry, he comes himself and reconciles it to himself. And through himself, it is reconciled also to the Father. But we must think about the word reconciliation if we're going to understand this passage. Because he says that through Christ to reconcile to himself all things. So everything is reconciled to Christ through Christ. That's a big statement. Every, like all things. How, how are diseases reconciled to Christ through Christ? How are the demons reconciled to Christ through Christ? We have this understanding of, at least I had the understanding, that reconciliation was you're at odds with somebody and then you're, you become okay, right? I get into an argument with my wife, normally my fault, most of the time my fault, and it becomes reconciled when I say, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot, right? That's not the only kind of reconciliation there is. There's a, another type of reconciliation that we will discuss here in just a moment. But first, let's talk about that, that reconciliation that happens through Christ that he specifically accomplished with humanity. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The reconciliation that the believer has with God through Christ is an objective reconciliation. You may have also experienced something like this with your spouse or with a friend or a brother or sister. Technically, you're reconciled. Technically, you've forgiven them. They've asked for forgiveness and and you say that you've forgiven them, so you've started the process, but you really don't feel like you've forgiven them. Or maybe you're on the receiving end, like I normally am, and I've done something really dumb, and Kara, being the sweet, kind girl she is, forgives me, but I can still tell the relationship doesn't feel quite right. It takes some time for it to be fully restored. The reconciliation that we have with God is kind of like that. It is an objective reconciliation. It has been accomplished, but we don't always feel like it has. Because the life that we live, there's an ebb and flow. We don't always feel reconciled with Christ, and oftentimes that's because of us. You see, we believe the objective truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That is an established historical fact that a man was crucified by the name of Jesus under Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago. But unlike believing just in some historical fact, we believe that that death, that that sacrifice, has supernatural consequences. And so we place our faith, our trust, in that historical and supernatural fact. And when that happens, the reconciliation that we, we become reconciled with God and the feelings of reconciliation follow suit. So oftentimes when I don't feel like I'm reconciled with God, when I don't feel like I'm right with God, they're normally one of two things. I'm either in sin or I'm not fully trusting in Christ. I'm focusing on something else. So I'm focusing on myself. Well, the, the, the common phrase is, you know, they've forgiven you. You need to forgive yourself now. I'm not saying there's not truth to that. But what that's saying is that my forgiveness to me is more important than God's forgiveness to me. We need to get over ourselves and place our faith and trust in God's forgiveness and focus on his forgiveness to us through Christ rather than holding it over ourselves like we are superior. So as we focus on Jesus, as we believe in his work on the cross and trust that trust through Christ that God has forgiven us, then the feelings of peace and reconciliation will follow. But it's not just humanity that experiences reconciliation with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, 
Paul writes again, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then the coming of those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's kind of a mouthful. The part I want you to get is that it says all, it says all in Christ shall be made alive. It's easy through these two passages to, to think of universalism meaning everyone's going to be saved. It doesn't matter. Everyone everyone from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler, everyone's going to be saved in the end. But that's actually not what the text is teaching. Because reconciliation doesn't mean being okay with one another. It means being made right. And there's two ways that you can be made right. A king can go out into his empire that's at war and he can go and he can gather his allies and people can bend the knee and and uh, um, declare their loyalty to the king and they're reconciled they're okay but all those enemies how can the king be reconciled to them if they're obstinate in their rebellion he has to crush them so when the, when the war is over and the king goes home and he takes with him the enemies, the rebels who refuse to bend the knee, when they are in his dungeon, reconciliation has taken place. All is made right again in his kingdom. The people who bent the knee, who are loyal to him, are reconciled to him. They're made right with him in their relationship. And the people who haven't, are suffering his wrath. And so there and through experiencing the judgment of God, things are made right. So the second thing I wanted you to get through that <clears throat> comes in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power. That should sound familiar. Because at the beginning, what is um, in uh, Colossians 1.15 and 16, what does it say? That everything was made through him, whether rulers, dominions, authorities, or powers. So Paul is saying that Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed the rebel forces that have declared havoc in his creation. And that is a similar way to which 
Paul um, applies this truth to and later on in Colossians, Colossians chapter two verse thirteen. Paul applies the idea of reconciliation to the Colossians again, and he does it in such a way where he includes the um, spiritual realities. He says, "And you." who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the, the, the rebellious nature that we have, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you have two kinds of people, not just people, you have two kinds of beings in the universe. Those who will be forgiven, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, and therefore God has canceled their record of debt, God has forgiven them, God sets aside their debt nailing it to the cross. And then he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame because through Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross, Jesus Christ has triumphed over them. And so therefore Paul can say in Philippians 2 verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, that is Jesus, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's one other thing I I want you to notice before we move on to uh, looking at how Jesus reconciles the physical creation. Did you notice the instances in those passages that I read that dealt explicitly with either the blood of Jesus or the cross of Jesus? Because in the passage in in Colossians, it says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. The The power of Satan is his ability to accuse. He is the deceiver and the accuser. Those are the literal names for Satan and devil. It means to accuse and to deceive. Satan draws up indictments against God. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Did God really say, well, God God only wants to hide things from you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to become just like him. He's holding out on you. Satan's power is that he accuses and he deceives. He lies And he calls into question, he calls into question God's goodness. He calls into question God's character. And since humanity believed him, he has evidence against us. You see, Satan lied to us about God. And because we believed him, now he has proof that we don't deserve his goodness. He has proof that we ourselves are like him and rebellious. 
But that is no longer his power. Satan no longer has power over death because Jesus died and rose again. And that is what the power of the gospel is. So when, when Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What, what about the gospel is powerful? What's powerful about the gospel is that it reveals its evidence that God is a righteous God. How does it show the righteousness of God? Quite simple. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then what? For all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning as a substitutional death, by His blood, to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness, because in His his divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Meaning, the gospel is the power of God. It it is the righteousness of God because it demonstrates that Jesus Christ took the hit for the terrible realities we see in creation. He took the hit for the fall. He truly is our head taking the responsibility for our sins. We can see that God is righteous. We can see that He is loving. He makes right the wrongs in His creation. He takes responsibility and shows us His kindness and goodness. In Christ's death, we see His love for His creation and His hatred for sin. What would have happened if God did just let everyone in? What kind of judge would He be? What kind of judge... If there was a judge who let a mass murder off the hook, what would you say about him? He's unjust. He's unrighteous. That is a crime against humanity for him to just let this guy go free. And yet, what would you say about a judge who condemned an innocent man? You see, at the cross, God both demonstrates his love for his creation and he demonstrates his hatred of sin. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of God's righteousness in his love and his judgment. His righteousness is displayed for all to see. So now when Satan comes along and tries to deceive us, when he comes along and says, see, God really isn't that powerful. God really isn't that great. He's not that kind. He's not that loving. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. We can say with him, We can say to him with the words of Paul, He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who who are you, Satan, to bring a charge against me? I'm part of his elect. It is God who justifies me. 
Who are you to condemn me? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God and he is interceding for me. We can go on and pound him into the ground saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, meaning the spiritual realities, spiritual entities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross, him spilling his blood, disarms the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual beings who would malign us, who would accuse us and accuse God, who would try to deceive us because the death of Jesus Christ is the ultimate display of God's righteousness to the universe. It displays his love and it displays his wrath. And everything will be made right because of Christ's death on a cross. Every knee will bow. That includes demons and angels. It includes Satan. It includes the most despicable human being you can think of. And it also includes the most loving person you can think of. The saint and the sinner alike will bow before Jesus Christ because he has demonstrated his righteousness. He has demonstrated his glory. He has demonstrated his goodness, his love, and he's demonstrated his wrath. He's demonstrated his hatred for sin. So that is that is the living beings, that is the conscious beings in creation. But Paul says all things. Paul says all things will be reconciled to God through Christ. We read again from Romans Romans 8:19 for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subject to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now It wasn't just humanity that suffered through Adam's sin. But the creation that we were set to be servant kings over was also subjected to futility. And the death of Jesus Christ that reconciles humanity will also reconcile all of creation. God will make a new creation. And everything, all things will be restored. All because of death of Jesus. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. It may be a willing peace. It may be voluntary where we bow our knee, but it may also be those who are subjected because he's conquered them and they will unwillingly bend the knee because they are given no choice. They are defeated. They have no choice but to surrender to Christ because they have no warrant for their lives. It is plain for all to see their eyes will be open at the end and they will recognize their defeat. 
So to close, the goal of this study, we've just, I've spent more time in Colossians verses 1, verses 15 through 20 than I have in the, in the rest of the, the chapter so far. I slowed down partly because it was just too rich to rush through. But it was also my hope that through this study, we might see Christ as more glorious. We may gain a more robust understanding of who he is and what he's done for us, what he's actually accomplished on the cross. So if if this has been accomplished, and I pray that it has, then our worship should be more informed. It should be more deep more meaningful, more heartfelt. So I pray that as a result of this study and Lord willing through the continuing study of, of the book of Colossians, that our affections for our Lord Jesus Christ might continue to grow, that we would learn to love him with all of our minds and all of our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Father, I do, I do pray that. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will so that our hearts would be filled that we would have strength, that we would have will, that we would have passion and zeal to live for you. Lord, I know that I need that in my own life. Lord, I pray for each, each person here today, Lord, that you would fill them with the knowledge of God, that we would marvel at the wondrous work of Jesus Christ, that what he did on the cross has ripple effects that will carry out through all eternity. There will not be a molecule that's not affected by what he's done. And he made everything for himself that he would be seen as the most glorious being in the universe. Lord, I pray that we would see that and that we would love him and worship him according to the glorious truths that you revealed to us in Scripture. I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ for his glory. Amen.